are kids really thinking and feeling? Sometimes it's hard to know. The thousands of letters and emails kids send to Highlights Magazine every year help us keep our finger on the pulse of kids. We think they can also help you. So each week on this podcast, we share a few of the messages we've received from kids and we discuss them with an expert. Lean in and listen to learn what kids want their grown-ups to know about being a kid today. I'm Christine French-Cully, and you're listening to Dear Highlights. Dear Highlights, I have a problem controlling my temper. My dad works at night, and I miss my dad's. I get keys to my dad's. Dear Highlights. Dear Highlights. Dear Highlights. We've been answering letters from kids for many decades. And if we could fasten together end-to-end all the letters kids have written to us asking for help in managing conflicts with siblings, the chain would probably range from our office to your home, wherever you live. That might be a slight exaggeration, but we do receive a lot of letters on this subject. Our topic today is sibling rivalry, and we'll explore some of the factors that contribute to it and offer some tips for parents on how to manage it. Here to share her considerable expertise on this subject is my guest, Dr. Laura Markham. Dr. Laura, as she prefers to be called, is a clinical psychologist and sought-after speaker. As a parenting coach, founder of the popular blog AHA Parenting, and author of several top-selling parenting books, Dr. Laura has helped countless families around the world engage in what she calls peaceful parenting. Dr. Laura, welcome to our podcast. Thank you for having me. We're delighted you're with us. To set the table for our conversation, I'd like to read a sampling of letters we receive from kids who are having trouble getting along with their brothers and sisters. Here's one from a boy named Danny. Dear Highlights, my little brother is always bugging me. Sometimes I can't even take it. Every time I start to play with something, he takes it away. My mom yells at me instead of him. Now I don't know what to do. Can you help me? And here's an excerpt from a longer email, which was signed anonymous. Dear Highlights, I was wondering what I should do about my brother and my relationship. We are amazing friends and get along great, sometimes. When I do something he doesn't like, or if he tells me to do something and I don't do it, he will hurt me. If I push him off and he gets hurt and cries, then I get in trouble and parents don't hear the full story. And it is always my fault. It's so stressful sometimes. That was all. I just want to know what I should do with some of my family issues. So Dr. Laura, in households with more than one child, is sibling rivalry inevitable? Well, yes, in that children will always, uh, humans are designed to make sure their needs are met so they can survive. So when there's a competition for scarce resources, there will be some fear about whether that sibling is edging you out for those scarce resources. And of course, there's also that human beings have conflicts. Any two humans who live together will inevitably have some conflict because two different people with two different sets of needs, or sometimes two siblings who are close in age and have the same needs and want the same toy. But I would also say that parents need to remember that there's so much they can do to reduce sibling rivalry and reduce kids fighting with each other. So while some conflict is inevitable and it's a great way for kids to learn skills, you know, the skills to work through conflicts in a productive way, they'll learn those for the rest of, they'll learn them here and they'll use them for the rest of their lives. But it's also true that we as parents can do a lot to 
keep kids from um, having the same fights over and over again, for instance. Well, I know that you talk about peaceful parenting. And when you when you talk about that construct, you include the ideas of listening to a child to validate their feelings and pausing to reflect a little bit before you react so that you can understand the reasons why a kid is behaving the way they are. That seems especially relevant to our conversation. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Sure. So I think all humans, when we get upset about something, we go into a little bit of a state of emergency or maybe a big state of emergency. And that means we're not listening. We're not trying to work things out with the other person. We're actually trying to make sure we get what we want or need and control the situation, which usually means controlling the other person. So there are ways to work out disagreements that strengthen the relationship. That's, you know, couples who've been married for a long time and have happy relationships, what they've done to build that strong relationship is not push disagreements under the rug. They've worked things out in a way that strengthens their trust and their communication. And siblings can do that too. But most siblings can't do it without some parental support to learn how to do that. So one thing we want to teach children is how to express their needs and wants without attacking the other person right? Wouldn't that be an amazing world if every child learned that as a child? And we, we all grew up having that skill and we lived in a world where everyone could do that. Wouldn't that be a different world? That would be a different world. It'd be lovely. <laughs> what can parents do to help children learn how to express their feelings? Well, uh, we call that emotion coaching. And what we first do, well, there's several parts of emotion coaching. First, we want to acknowledge the child's emotions. If we don't know exactly what they're feeling, that's okay. We can acknowledge what they wanted, you know? Oh, you wish I would say yes that you could have some screen time now. You you wish we would be able to stay longer at the park. You're, that's not even a feeling, it's a wish the child has. But we're acknowledging that they wish something could be different, right? And we can acknowledge their, their actual feelings if we know what they are. When they say, I'm so mad at my brother, we can say, wow, you are so mad at your brother right now. You have something important to tell him. And, and even, um, it sounds like you have something so important to say to your brother. Do you want me to come with you while you tell him? So you, you don't say it for them, but you're coaching them to be able to stand up for themselves and tell their brother what they're upset about. Now, I said there's a lot of parts to emotion coaching. That is basic emotion coaching. But it, notice that in order to do that, we have to be able to calm ourselves down. So we need to be able to stop, drop our agenda, take a deep breath. And then if we can stay calm, we can role model for our child how to stay calmer. So when they do engage with the thing that's upsetting them, you know, with their brother about this thing, they're able to express it in a way that the brother might be more likely to be able to hear it. Yeah, that's a challenge for parents sometimes because in the heat of the moment, we tend to be more reactive than reflective or thoughtful, which is natural. Um, yes. Yeah, so it, it's, a, it's a skill parents maybe have to be very intentional about trying to acquire or trying to practice. I think it takes a lot of work. I mean, when you think about it, we weren't taught these skills when we were growing up. And also... No. It pushes our buttons when our children fight. All parents get triggered when their children fight with each other. We don't want to see either of our children hurt or even their feelings hurt. 
and we worry. Maybe it means they won't be friends later in life. Will they ever stop this fighting? It's the thing that most stresses us. We worry that maybe we've done something wrong as parents. And so when we get triggered, it's harder to stay calm. So I think for all parents, acknowledging that it is normal for children to have conflicts and that we can play a positive role is it's reassuring and it's motivational to stay with it and to try to coach kids to learn the skills they need to learn. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, sibling rivalry can show up kind of right along with the birth of that second child or with the arrival of the second child. And it can s- stay throughout childhood. Siblings who really seem to struggle to get along are, are they able to be friends as adults? I mean, that is what parents want. They want their children to be, you know, have healthy, positive interactions the rest of their lives. They want them to be family and friends. Absolutely. That's what we all want for our children. And the answer is yes. Actually, the research on this shows it's not the amount of conflict they have. It's the amount of good times. So if ah. you have two children who fight a lot, but they also play together a lot and have a great time together, Those they will be close for life. Now, what if you have two kids who maybe they're further apart in age and they don't play together a lot just naturally? I had kids who are four years apart, a boy and a girl, so not such natural playmates. I had to do a little work as a parent to find things that they did enjoy doing together and facilitate those things so that they got regular opportunities to engage and have a good time together because that's what builds the relationship for later in life. Yeah, that's uh, that's so interesting. Uh, And it makes a lot of sense, really. How can, you know, uh, sibling squabbles, I mean, they can be everything from he's touching me or, you know, he's in my space to um, another child wrote to us and said, my brother's making me crazy because he won't stop singing Christmas carols even when it's not Christmas. My parents won't make him stop. (laughs) How can parents tell when the conflicts uh, may be revealing something deeper and more lasting? Um, You know, maybe some sibling rivalry that will require more of parents' attention. Well, one thing we've learned from the research is that ignoring sibling conflict is not a good idea unless you've already taught them the skills to work it through. So we used to think, oh, let them work it out for themselves. Right. And it is true that if you ignore it and let them work it out themselves, they will fight less. So that seems good on the face of it, except that when researchers started to look at what was happening, they realized that what was happening is the more powerful child would always win the fight. So without parental intervention, It's almost a recipe for bullying. The more Mm. powerful child was able to step in and say, do it my way or else. Sort of, you know, it's interesting that it isn't always the stronger, older child. Sometimes it's the four-year-old who's able to get mom and dad's attention and the older child gets in trouble, which is the case in one of the letters that you just read, right? That's right, that's right. So, So whichever child then is able to get their way, will get will use their power to get their way. And they're not necessarily working things out well, right? In a way that brings them closer. So mm-hmm. parents, um, it turns out that if you jump in to moderate the situation, to be the moderator and you say, okay, 
you two should know better. You, you especially should know better. You're the oldest. You give that back to your sister, you know, or you go on the naughty step. If you come in and you're the arbiter, the judge and the jury, and you tell them what's right and what's wrong, it also doesn't work because the child who gets, you know, usually what we do is we're a little upset and we place blame. And we've got an opinion. We all have opinions. And maybe it's always the same thing over and over again. And yes, he always does push his little sister around. But when we come in and we blame him, what is his takeaway? Mom and dad never listen to me. They always take her side. She always gets her way. Nobody understands me. And that child builds up so much resentment against the sibling you will never have a close relationship with between your children if you do that, right? How could you? Because you're giving your child so much freight that he's carrying around. He builds up a chip on his shoulder of resentment that he'll always be a little resentful of how she got, you know, preferential treatment from the parents. So there is a good way to intervene, but that's not the one that reduces fighting. That also increases fighting. Yeah. And that can lead some children to conclude that their parents have a favorite child. Of course, of course. And, you know, it is it is important for parents to intervene and to intervene in a way that validates both kids because otherwise the child naturally concludes, you know, that that you don't care about them. And, you know, it starts when they're little. It starts when the second baby is born, which you said before. So... I remember when my my daughter was born, my son was four, he had begged for a sister. And of course, as soon as she was born, he said, she can't even play with me. That was the whole point. <laughs> when can we send her back? I hate her. I don't know why I just do. And of course, you know, my husband was aghast that he would say such things about this tiny baby. And I didn't want him to say them either, but I also thought they're not gonna go away just because we tell him not to say them. So I would... I would hug him and say, it must be so hard to have to share me. It must be so hard to wait when my hands are busy to have to wait for help with your train track. It must be so hard right now when you want to go off to the park, to the playground, and she's asleep, so we have to wait. It, You know, it's hard to be a big brother. And he would sort of relax against me and soften and then he would go play with his trains. And then I would see him 20 minutes later sort of come back into the room where she was sleeping in her bassinet. And he'd go down next to her and he'd pet her gently. And that wouldn't have happened if I hadn't allowed him to express all those negative feelings. You know, once we allow our children to feel what they're feeling, once we acknowledge the feelings, once they know they're not bad people for feeling that resentment, then those that resentment begins to fade away. It's like, okay, mom understands at least. And he told me many years later that he remembered wanting to, he never hit her, but he remembered wanting to hit her. And the reason he never did it is that he could always tell me and I would always understand. And so he never needed to. And also he said, and you always help me solve the problem. And I realized, yes, they also need us to help solve the problem. So if she's getting into his Lego structure, then I need to give him a safe place to work on it that she, when she's two, can't be climbing up on it, right? And breaking it. So they also need us to listen. And they also need us to not assume that they should always give something to the baby. It's okay for them to hang on to it if they're working on something, if they had it first. 
You know, it's mm-hmm. like, again, like the letter that you read, a different letter you read, where, where the child always had to give something to his brother. And he was the one who got in trouble if his brother took something from him, right? Mm-hmm. We, we can't um, privilege one of the children over the other, or we create resentments between them. That's a, a major thing that parents do that creates resentment. Right, absolutely. Uh, that's a powerful story about your son and, and uh, his little sister. What is the difference between treating children fairly versus equally? Because I think sometimes parents get pretty hung up on the idea of trying to treat all their children the same, equal attention. Um, first of all, is it even possible? Probably not. And secondly, isn't the goal really to be fair with each of them? Well, I think fairness is a really important concept to children. We're born, humans are born with some idea of fairness. And, you know, it's not fair, says the five-year-old, you know. There's a very big focus on that. And so kids tell parents it's not fair. And parents try so hard, they bend over backwards. But here's the thing. You're right that we can't really be fair. And also, will the child even perceive it as fair? You know, if, if my son had grown up feeling like, well the baby, you know, everything's all about her, and I hadn't allowed him to work through those feelings, he would have still felt it was unfair no matter what. Everything, when we have a belief system, everything that happens to us becomes ammunition for that belief system, right? So they're looking for, they're constantly finding proof that we are unfair and that we're treating them unfairly if they have a belief system. So what we really need to do is tackle that belief system. And we tackle that belief system by being sure that every child feels seen and heard and understood and loved. And we aren't giving, we're not actually giving the baby preferential treatment. Yes, maybe the baby needs to keep sleeping. And we acknowledge that he wishes he could go to the playground. But maybe another time when the baby is happy and playing, you know, in, in, on our lap, we say, or, or playing happily, you know, in her bassinet, we say to her, even though she's not asking for anything, we say, yes, you're having a great time, but you wish mommy would come and talk to you. But right now I'm helping big brother with his train set. So everybody has to wait sometimes. And he learns, okay, she waits sometimes too, right? And we Mm -hmm. demonstrate that actually everybody's needs are being met. And here's what children need to have as their takeaway. No matter how much my sibling gets, there is more than enough for me. My parents love me. They could never love anyone more than they love me. And we need to tell them those two things explicitly so they know and they don't have the belief system that things are unfair. Now, there are things we can also do. You said, what is it to treat them fairly versus equally? You know, we're not going to treat them equally. But let's say you have one kid who outgrows their sneakers. And you're, you say, it's Saturday morning, oh, Sarah, you're, you're, you need a new pair of sneakers. Those sneakers are, getting, are just too small for you. You're, you've got holes in them. And, you know, um, her little sister says, or her big sister says, what about me? I want new sneakers too. Because of course, that's what they're going to say. And you say, you do, do you? Of course you do. Everybody loves to get new things. And I bet you know just what kind of sneakers you'd pick out. And you know what? We're going to get used new sneakers as soon as you're, you outgrow the ones you have. Right now, today, we're getting Sarah's because look at that hole. She's already got a hole in her sneakers and she's outgrown these. But And you're going to be outgrowing your sneakers. Let me put those on. Let me feel them. Oh, not so long from now, but you still got another couple of months in here. But I'm thinking June for you or whatever, you know, and you, you, she's reassured when she needs new sneakers, she'll get them. Now, she may still pout. 
she may still say, how come Sarah gets new sneakers and I don't? You say, because you don't need them yet, but when you need new sneakers, you will get them. Believe me, there are always enough sneakers and there's always enough love because that's what they're really saying. Is there enough love? And you can say, if she's still like, no, you don't love me. You love Sarah more. She's getting sneakers. You can say, hmm, she is getting sneakers because she needs them. But you seem to feel like you're not getting something really important. You know what I have to do about that? I have to give you 100 hugs and kisses. And then you turn it into a game where you're hugging and kissing her and getting her giggling. And she's getting, she isn't getting the sneakers, but she's getting something better. She's getting a parent who understands, who didn't make her feel guilty, who's giving her all the love in the world, right? And Sarah doesn't even mind. She's getting the sneakers. You're, you're, you're doting on her sister at the moment. She doesn't care. She's going to get the sneakers. But the sister feels like, well, I don't always get what I want, but I get something better. I get a mom and dad who understand me and who love me and who shower me with love no matter what. And there's always sneakers. When I need them, I'll get them, right? Yeah. That's the take. That seems to be the key to helping mitigate sibling rivalry is to make sure all the kids know that there's enough love for everyone. So let's talk a little bit more about older children, elementary school age kids. I think we all know that it's not a good idea to assign labels to kids. I think we all do it in various aspects of life. But, you know, I think sometimes parents catch themselves saying, oh, well, your brother is the athlete in the family, or Jake is really the scholar, or this one is the techie. You know, that can probably promote some sibling rivalry as well. I would say any time you compare children, it Jerry. it creates sibling rivalry because, you know, um, why can't you be more like your sister and just sit right down and do your homework, Right. Do you think yeah. her takeaway is, oh, I should sit down and do my homework? No, it's my sister. She's always so perfect. They like her better than they like me, right? You don't need to mention her sister. Just say, hey, sweetheart, it's time to sit down and do your homework. That's all you have to say. And and it's also the positive. The flip side of that is also not good. If you say to the sister, I love how you sit down and do your homework. That's great. But if you go further and say, I wish your sister would just sit down and do her homework the way you do and didn't give me such a hard time. Now she has a vested interest in maintaining her position in the family. Her only, you know, she gets the the goodies of you liking her because she's better than her sister. It has nothing to do with her sister. She sits down and does her homework. That's fabulous. Her sister's got her own stuff, you know? But it should never it should never be a comparison where she needs to now keep her sister as the bad kid so she can enjoy the fruits of being the good kid, right? So yeah. any comparison always backfires. But specifically, I think the question you just asked often happens in families where they say, oh, he's the athlete, she's the straight-A student or whatever. And if you talk to adults about this, I've had conversations over and over with adults about this. As I talk, I talk to parents all the time, right? And they talk about their own experience in their own family where their mother always made a big deal of their sister's piano playing because she was the talented musician. But their piano playing, they never really pushed her to practice and they never really, you know, when she wanted to quit, they never made a big deal of it. And she always sort of wished she hadn't quit or that somebody had urged her to practice. And she 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 looked back at it and she said she had always felt like she was 
not a good musician, but it turned out later in life, she actually had some talent, she realized. But what a heartbreaking story, right? I've heard so many versions of that story. And it makes you want to cry. Like, why would we do this to our children? Yeah, yeah. And sometimes the comparisons uh, come from teachers. Um, I'm the oldest of three in my family. And I was a good student. And my adult siblings say to me, oh, yeah, we, you know, we would go and have your teacher, the teacher you had two or three years before us. And they would always say, oh, you're her sister. And they, expect, they felt like the expectations were um, to be like me or to be, you know, as good at certain things as I was or to behave in a certain way. And really made it hard for them to, to forge their own identity and be their own person in, in, the, in the classroom and at home. Yes. And I'll give you an example, actually, that parents, I think, could use because it is so frequent that we make a big deal out of one child's achievements. And we never want to um, act like it doesn't matter that they have this achievement. So let's say you have two children and they're one's in the school play and they have the lead in the school play and they're, you know, Captain Hook or whatever. And then you have another child who gets a walk-on part as a pirate and never has a line, right? And right. so after you go to the play and you're home at, you know, dinner or the, you know, afterwards, you say, let's have a, uh, raise our water glasses and a toast to our actors who made this play so successful. And then you give a specific description of each one of them. And you might say to Michael, who was Captain Cook, and and when you, when you, you know, walked in the ship, you know, the, the ship, trembled and, you know, and, and, you know, whatever you might, you say something about Michael's performances as Captain Hook. Um, and then you say, and to David, who was Pirate X, whatever, if, if he has a name, you know, I think some of them have names. Um, and you say, David, you didn't have to say a word for me to see the look on your face and your glowing eyes. I was scared just sitting in the audience the way you glared out at us. You were so in character. You just took over that role as a pirate and really made me feel it. Okay, now David feels like he did something of value. He may still say to you at bedtime that night, you know, Michael got to be the hero and I was just a, you know, I didn't even have any words. And you can say, you didn't have any words yet. In this play, you didn't have any words, but you did such, that's growth mindset, right? Yet, you yes. didn't have it, but you you will in the future. If you keep trying out for plays and you keep taking your role seriously, like you took this private role seriously, and you make the audience feel it, slowly but surely, you're going to start getting roles where you get to speak. Yeah, but my brother already gets these big roles. I mean, let's say they're even twins, you know, that you can't even say it's because you're younger. And you say, yeah, your brother did get the roles and your brother works hard at them and that's great for your brother and we can be very proud of him. But you know what? You're your own personal best. And I am so proud of you that you took that role seriously. You know, sometimes it's harder to have the smaller part and really have the audience feel it than to have the big part where you have more to work with. And, you know, you took this seriously. And if you keep doing that, you're going to create success for yourself if this is an important thing for you to do. Parents can keep that in mind so that they can encourage a child, even when the, the sister is the soccer star and they can't quite do it yet. But they can keep mm -hmm. trying and practicing. Mm -hmm. I can see how conversations like that would really tamp down 
um, competition between siblings and really lead to kids being supportive of one another, supportive of their brothers and sisters, because we want that too. We want siblings to be cheerleaders for one another, protective and encouraging. Yeah, that's really helpful. Um, Boy, you've given us so many good tips. Is there anything else you'd like to say to parents who um, would love to have less uh, strife in their uh, households with more than one child? (laughs) Well, I think maybe the most important thing that parents can do is notice how they intervene in fights and tweak that a little bit. So when you have two children fighting, our tendency is to jump in and blame one child. Instead, try offering empathy to both kids. Even if you think one is wrong, you can say, so you're really upset because she came in your room and messed up your ships that you were building. And you're really upset because when he came in to talk to you about it, he kicked over your animal zoo. You're both really upset. Now, you may be trying to establish who did it first, but the truth is they could be responding to something that happened yesterday that you weren't there for. You don't have to be the judge. All you have to do is acknowledge that both kids are upset. Wow, whoa, 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 these are some loud voices or those are some hurtful words. It could really hurt to hear those words. Our family rule is be kind. So you're promoting the family rule, but at the same time you're saying you must be really mad at your sister to use words like that to her. You can tell your sister what you're upset about without attacking her with words like that. You can tell your sister, and you're right there to support them to do that, right? So helping them feel understood, helping them express it to each other, that's what opens the possibility that they can find a win-win solution. And these are skills they will use for the rest of their lives. That's right, that's right. These are lifelong skills. Offering empathy to both children who are having the conflict, that seems to me like a really good way to show that there's enough love for both. Yeah, that's great. This has been so wonderful, Dr. Laura. Um, We like to close our podcast by asking our guests um, a variation of this question. It highlights one of our core beliefs is that children are the world's most important people. And uh, another one of our core beliefs is that childhood is a short, sweet season, we call it. And it's deserving of thoughtful, loving attention of adults. If we have if we as a society embraced these beliefs, are there things that we might do differently to better support parents and make it easier for parents to practice peaceful parenting? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. We could start with the bond that develops between a baby and their parents. And, you know, those first months are so important. It's a critical time for the baby to develop trust. And it's also the hardest time for the parents who are sleepless and just learning how to care for their baby and get feeding established. We're the only developed country in the world that doesn't offer paid maternity and uh, often, um, many of them offer paid paternity leave, at least for short times. Uh, So that would be huge. Uh, Another, we know that uh, another big stressor is poverty, that children's brains are different if they grow up in poverty. And part of that is the stress on the parents. And so- If we want to give children the best chance to have a good life, we could start by helping them develop brains that will serve them well in life by supporting parents 
to eradicate poverty. And there are many countries, again, that have taken leadership in this and have greatly reduced poverty um, across the board in their countries. Uh, Another thing, we could have a radically different approach to education because our schools are so under-resourced. And the final thing I would say is many countries have wonderful visitation programs where older parents in a community are, are trained or given special training, and they are paid to visit new parents and to visit repeatedly in the first five years of a child's life. And they help those new parents understand the child's developmental needs, how to respond to troublesome, ordinary, childish behavior, how even to do what you and I have been talking about, emotion coaching, how to help them when a child expresses big emotions or jealousy of their sibling. Because once children can manage their emotions, they can manage their behavior. And that gives them better, more meaningful relationships for the rest of their lives with everyone. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. I know that's a big question, and uh, there are no simple. Yes, I, I gave you a lot of things. I know, but I I love it because I think it's important that we keep asking ourselves that question, and um, and I like our listeners to reflect on on some of the uh, ideas of ways that we can we can help create um, a better world for all children. So thank you so much for your time. This has been wonderful. It's been such a pleasure to speak with you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We are honored to be able to elevate kids' voices and share with you some of what they share with us. Whether a child's concern is big or small, unique or universal, serious or sure to easily work itself out, it's real to the child and matters deeply. We've come to see that in every letter kids have sent to us over the years, there are implicit, overarching questions embedded within. Do you care? Am I loved? Do I have a place in the world? A place in the lives of the people I love? We hope kids believe us when we say in many more words, yes, yes, yes. Let's all lean in to give kids what they really need and want. More listening, more understanding, and more connecting. This podcast is an extension of the book, Dear Highlights, What Adults Can Learn from 75 Years of Letters and Conversations with Kids publishing this August and available for pre-order now, everywhere books are sold. If you enjoyed this podcast, don't forget to subscribe and leave a review to help us reach more grown-ups who care about kids. And if you'd like to send a comment or suggestion to me directly, please email me at christine at highlights.com.